Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. One of the most prominent voices from out of the past of the holiness movement was J.D. Young. He served as a pastor and evangelist, and he also served on the IHC Executive Committee for many years. This sermon was actually preached at the Dayton Interchurch Holiness Convention in 1979, and he titles this wonderful message, What Kind of Fire? I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful sermon. now represents the young old stream that's coming on and we've got some good young old streamers that are still hanging around the convention God's been good to brother young brought him through some very serious surgery this past year spared him to us we love him and appreciate him deeply he's one of the leaders of the convention crowd we also have some fine very young preachers coming on you heard one of them last night you heard Rex Bullock last year. I thank God for the vibrant, strong, powerful preachers that are coming on the scene. And this morning, one of these younger, older, fiery, excellent pulpiteers of the convention movement will be preaching for us at this time, J.D. Young, Salisbury, North Carolina, and our convention chairman. I said to my wife, last evening, I think it was, how much I appreciated the presence of the Holy Spirit. Yes. My heart has been challenged. Yes. Brother Wardwell said last night, he said, if your bell hasn't been rung, your clapper's broke. Yes. I uh, have not been in all the services because of it being necessary to rest some, but I have deeply appreciated the emphasis the sense of the direction. I wish you could have all listened to our General Secretary's report to the General Committee on Tuesday morning because I felt like he put his finger on the very heartthrob of the need of the day in which we live. I am not here this morning by choice, but by coercion. And I think some of you preachers will understand that without uh, too much trouble. Birthdays are a time of reminiscing, aren't they? Uh, at least after you get past uh, certain birthdays. As I sat on the platform this morning, my mind went back and it kind of uh, jolted me just a moment as we thought about 35 years. Some of you have heard me relate this before, but I share it this morning. The first convention that was held was held a little over 35 years ago in uh, the early part of January. 
At that particular time, I was a young man, rebellious, bitter, and determined to have my own way. Have you ever been there? <laughs> I had a mother who just somehow was determined that her boys weren't going to go to hell. And I thank God for her this morning. And mom said, you know, she said, son, there's some kind of a convention, a revival convention or something that's going on over at Salem and Ohio, and I would really like to go, and I don't have a way. Would you take me? And I said, no. And then I realized that, uh, well, maybe I should. And so I did. I took her over and dropped her off in front of the church and said, I'll be back and pick you up when the service is over. And I did. But across the years, that convention has become a very important part of my life because through her prayers, God got to my heart and brought a stubborn, rebellious young man to the point of submitting and surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Until my plans and my ambitions fell at my feet in ashes, his will became my will. And I rejoice in that this morning. Little did I realize that early cold January morning that 35 years later that I would have put in over 29, 30 years in the ministry and be a part of this crowd this morning, and I'm happy to be here in his service. I did want to just take just a moment and say thank you to the great number of individuals who prayed and shared with us in these last several months as we went through surgery again. I, as soon as I knew that I had to go to surgery, I know Brother Eddie Beaver was on the phone calling and others were on the phone calling. And the word came back that in Kansas and in Florida and in Michigan and across the country, folk were praying. And I attribute the fact that I'm here this morning to your prayers and to God answering those prayers. Could I just share briefly this one little tidbit with you before I go to the message? I shared it with the committee the other morning, but on Tuesday night before going to surgery on Christmas Eve morning, Knowing what I was facing again and somewhat apprehensive, I awoke in the middle of the night unable to sleep. And the Lord began to speak to my heart as I tried to pray. And it was one of those times that I would not trade for a million dollars because the Holy Spirit slipped into that hospital room and spoke to my heart from the words that are found in the 119th Psalm, Great Peace, Have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. I've been in some great conventions, some great camp meetings, and I've experienced some unusual times of blessing from God, but there has been never a time in my life when I experienced the waves of divine glory that swept over my soul in the midst of that hour until that dark hospital room became irradiated with the glory of God and the sense of His presence until it didn't make any difference what tomorrow morning held, I knew who held tomorrow, and I was his, and he was mine. Praise his name. Thank you for your prayers and for your love. 
In the book of Titus, the second chapter, you will find the scripture lesson we want to think with you from this morning. Some of the thoughts that I will share with you are thoughts that have come to me from that month or so that I was laid on the side, having time to think and time to pray and allow the Lord to speak to my own heart. But in the book of Titus, the second chapter, beginning at verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us the denying ungodliness and worldly lusts or worldly desires, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Father, this earthen vessel needs thy touch this morning. This waiting congregation needs thy touch this morning. Would it please you to come just now in a special way to touch both preacher and people? And may we be keenly conscious of the voice of God speaking to us from thy word until we shall go from this service challenged by thy spirit, not by the speaker, to serve thee better. And we shall praise you. Amen. Mr. Barclay makes the observation that there are few passages in the New Testament which so vividly set forth the moral power of the Incarnation, as does the passage which we have shared with you this morning. Because its whole stress is the miracle of moral change, which God performs or works in the heart of mankind, and of the hope that springs to life because of the grace of God. In a certain Christian doctor's office, there hangs a little sign with the words inscribed upon it, perhaps today. And to every person who enters his waiting room, he is testifying of the blessed hope he has in the gospel of Christ and of the grace that is provided that Jesus Christ could come back today. You know, sometimes we... We like to testify to this fact and we like to talk about it, but it, I'm afraid, is far too more theoretical than it is reality. We really don't believe he really could come now. Oh, yes, we know that he's coming and we, we, we say theoretically he can come back, but it's maybe tomorrow or next month or next year. I believe one of the things that impeded the early New Testament church to live as they did was the fact that they looked for Jesus Christ to come back any time. And so they were willing to suffer all that they suffered because they thought this could be the day that he would come back. So what difference does it make? The passage of Scripture falls into four rather natural divisions that I would point out for our thinking together and use as an outline for our consideration. 
First of all, there is suggested to us the great provision for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. When you try to define grace, it's like trying to define the anointing of God. How do you define grace? Some have tried and it has been described as the highest degree of unmerited love that is known to man. Someone else has defined it as active love exercised toward those who don't deserve it. Somebody has come up with an acrostic of grace which goes like this, God's riches at Christ's expense. Mr. McLaren, the commentator and great preacher of the past, has defined grace as the grace of God, which is the active energy of his love, which stoops from the throne to move among men, and departing from the strict grounds of justice and retribution, deals with us not according to our sins, nor rewards us according to our iniquities. That's grace. It is by his grace that we are enabled to be ready to look forward to his coming the second time. I do not need to remind this congregation that the Master set down the requirements that we must meet if we are to live with him throughout eternity. Everybody that says to go, they're going to heaven just ain't a gone. But there are those who are going who have met his requirements. I got to thinking one day and I thought to myself, what if the, if the great God of the universe would have laid out the requirements that we must meet to go to heaven and then let us alone to strive in our own efforts to meet it, I would be of all men most miserable. But he not only laid out the requirements, but he provided the grace and the means whereby I can meet those requirements. Hallelujah. The grace of God and this great salvation is still one of the greatest, it is the greatest wonder in all of the universe. There is no way that you can plumb the depths of the grace of God in meeting the need of the human heart. I would say to you this morning that there is no heart that is so hard, but what the grace of God can melt that heart and they can experience the transforming grace of God. I sometimes look at some for whom I'm praying, some who I carry heavily upon my heart, and I wonder, can they ever be brought to the place of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? But then I am reminded that God's grace can melt the hardest heart until the grace of God can be affected in their lives. Hallelujah! A number of years ago, the last Christmas that I spent at home with my immediate family, was a memorial one and one which I shall cherish and never forget. My brother next to me was unsaved, had been unsaved for a considerable period of time. He'd become quite hard, quite bitter. You, uh, you just didn't talk to him about the Lord. You didn't say much to him because he just wasn't interested. And I remember at Thanksgiving time, I came home from school. And mother said to me, son, she said, I believe God is dealing with your brother. I couldn't tell any difference. I couldn't see anything happening. 
But you know, moms that pray and know how to touch God, they know things others don't know. Many a morning I had seen that mother of mine in the early hours of the morning when it was still cold before the heat had come up in the house. When I would make my way downstairs toward the barn to do my early morning chores, she was already on her knees wrapped up in a quilt and already interceding at the throne of grace for her family. And she knew God. And that's why I'm here this morning hour. And I said something to her, but she said, but son, she said, you don't understand. God's working with your brother. She said, I put a track in his lunchbox the other day and he took it to work and he put it on the bulletin board. He came and told me about it and I could hardly believe what I was hearing because it was out of character at that present time. Christmas Eve now and we're gathered around the family altar and the Christmas tree and the gifts that are laid out to exchange. And as was our custom, we always took time to pray and read the Christmas story and honor the Christ of Christmas. We read the Christmas story that night, knelt to pray, and I was asked to lead in prayer. And the Christ of Christmas came so blessedly near into that family altar. And then my mother said something that I thought to myself, Mother, why in the world would you be so antagonistic in an atmosphere like this and at a time like this? Because she said, now see, so will you pray. That was my brother that was bitter and hard and unsaved. There was silence. And then I heard coming from my brother's lips, oh, God. There was a pause. Then there was a sob. And then, oh, God. By that time, God came and that hard heart was melted and was broken. And he wept his way to Calvary that night around the family altar. Neighbor, listen to me this morning hour. There is no heart that is so hard, but what the grace of God can touch that heart. Don't give up on your loved ones. Don't give up. God's grace is sufficient. We may not live to see the fruition of our prayers. We may not live to see the reality of God's grace. But don't give up. Hold on. For the grace of God can melt the hardest heart. There is no life that is so broken and so blasted by sin. But what the grace of God with his loving hand can bind up that broken heart and take those cords that have been silent until they can vibrate again. And I am convinced this morning hour that there is no soul that is so black or has gone so far. But if giving the chance for the Holy Spirit to work, the grace of God can meet their need. Some years ago, one of our pastorates, there was a family that was facing some very difficult and desperate circumstances. To make a long story short, the mother had become involved in, or the wife of the home had become involved in a, in a triangle love affair which involved her husband and another man. Her husband was busy, had no time for her. Friend of the family came in and gave attention, and out of that it grew to more than just a platonic relationship until a child was conceived. 
She's in the hospital now. Doctor can't figure out what's wrong, and I remember the day I walked into the hospital, and old Dr. Bill, the old family doctor of our community, was coming out, and he said, Preacher, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk to you a moment, and he did. He said, If there's any help for her, it'll have to come from you. There's nothing that I can do. I don't have medicine that can help that woman. Because the guilt of what had taken place, the guilt of her sin was weighing down upon her in such a way till she was becoming a psychotic and ready almost to be committed to an institution unless something changed. One night, 11, about 11.30, the phone rang in the parsonage. Husband was on the line and saying, Pastor, would you please come? Jean's worse. So wife and I got out of bed and quickly dressed, made arrangements for somebody to slip into the home to watch our boys who were still very young at that time, and we slipped out into that new community, that new development, into that beautiful, lovely new home. When we were greeted at the door at this husband and said, we're so glad you came. We walked into the room where, the bedroom where she was, and she was almost comatose. It seemed like she didn't even, was not conscious that anybody was present. We tried to talk, but we just weren't getting anywhere. And I shall never forget as I stood at the foot of the bed and wife beside me and her husband sitting on the bed, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and he said, I want you to quote Isaiah 118. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as white as wool. And I quoted it and I tried to explain a little bit of what Isaiah was talking about. And I stopped and there was no response. And the Holy Spirit spoke so clearly to my heart and said, Son, tell her again. And I did. And I tried again to explain a bit more fully, but still no response. And the Holy Spirit said, tell her again. And I did. When I finished that time, out of the fog and out of wherever it was, uh, she had allowed herself to regress. Uh, she started to come back and she looked up with bleary eyes uh, and she said, But Pastor, you don't know what I've done. And I said, Jean, it makes no difference whether I understand or not. God told me to tell you, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as white as wool. And God told me to tell you that his grace was able to forgive. She turned and looked to her husband and she said, Dick, can you ever forgive me? And I said, it's time to pray, Dick. Help her to get on her knees and let's get out of bed. And we went to prayer that night and the grace of God that brings salvation reached to the depths of a man, woman, and of a husband who it looked like was hopelessly, hopelessly lost and brought back restoration. Don't minimize the grace of God in the impossible task of life and in impossible lives. Let me go just quickly a bit farther, and I want to note with you for a few moments the purpose of grace. Paul tells us that we should deny ungodliness, worldly de desires, and should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. 
You see, God's grace has been provided that here and now, right now, our hearts will be a fit place for the God of all grace to dwell. One of the greatest mysteries to me as far as the salvation of Jesus Christ is the fact that the great God of the heaven who the heaven of heavens cannot contain will come and tabernacle in this temple. That he'll come and live with me. But before he can come and live in this temple, it must be renovated by the Holy Spirit. He will not dwell in a temple that is impure or unclean. And so therefore the grace of God has been given that he might prepare a place, a vessel, a temple in which the God of all grace can dwell. This is the requirement of our lives while we are looking for that blessed hope. I don't need to remind you of the fact that hope and holiness are closely associated in the scripture and they must not be separated in life. For instance, if you will note 1 John chapter 3, everyone that hath this hope in himself purifieth himself even as he is pure. A lot of folk are talking about heaven, I said, but everybody ain't a-going unless there has been the work of grace in the heart that has so cleansed and purified that heart until God can dwell without reservation. If that has taken place, then this produces obedience, which is not a mere legal obedience or a moral life apart from God, but it describes the constitution and the character of one who has embraced this hope and are called the children of the heavenly king. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we're reminded that the one who has made possible this wonderful hope, who has called us, he has called us to a holy calling. He is holy, and therefore, he wants his people to be holy. God, who is holy from all eternity, has revealed himself to mankind as a holy God. And God's requirements of holiness are not new. It isn't something that's just developed. The holiness of God goes back to the covenant relationship back in Leviticus when God said to his people there, I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves. Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves. Regardless of how you view God's call to holiness, the inevitable conclusion is that God will have a people who resemble him in holiness of heart. When you consider the nature of God, the will of God, the call of God, the command of God, the promises of God, the provisions and the power of God, and the eternal purpose of God, the end result is a holy people who walk with the Holy God. Let me go just a bit farther. Holiness and ethics cannot be separated. For true ethical conduct, conduct is patterned after the holy character of God. I'm concerned that some of the ethics that is practiced by those who call themselves 
holy people. Sometimes we are so rude and so crude until it is no wonder that the world turns their back and looks at us as cults. Come on, church. Back just a couple or three, four weeks ago, a young man walked into a certain place of business and over the intercom in that office was music being played. He walked over to the secretary at the desk and he said, ma'am, would you turn that music off? It offends me. What are you thinking? Somebody was telling me about it and said, what would you have said if you would have been there? I'd have said, young man, if you don't like the music in this institution, you just walk out the door that you came in. Because your life is not testifying to a life of holiness or of ethics. Well, you say, what kind of music was it? I really don't know, and I don't really know that it matters. It was a place of business. It was not a church. You know, church, sometimes we try to impose standards and ideas and notions upon the world that turns them in the opposite direction rather than showing an ethical standard of conduct that speaks of love and compassion and of tenderness that has been preached from this pulpit during this convention. I do not have to sanction everything in every place I go, but I do have to be holy and ethical in my conduct. And that means being courteous and polite. Amen. I'm concerned about some of the tracts that I see being distributed. Are you still there? If I was an unsafe person and somebody would hand me some of the tracts that I have seen, I would do just what they do. I'd throw them on the ground if I was unsaved. They're offensive. Well, you say, but the gospel is offensive. Yes, it is, but we don't have to work at the job to make it so. Amen. There is an approach. There is a way. There is a method of presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit will be the dividing line. You see, church, the holiness to which he has called us is more than outward legal requirements which we strive to meet. It is his indwelling power that furnishes the ability to live lives that reflect his character and his person. I, I'm concerned this morning that in our, in our pursuit to maintain a rigid separation from the world, that we are, have become more concerned about the strict observances of the do's and the don'ts than we are in the perfecting of holiness and the fear of God. I was a young man when the various groups began coming out of what we refer to as our mother churches. I came out and cast my lot with a conservative crowd by choice because I thought that was what God wanted me to do. I 
I look back now across some 30 years, 25 to 30 years, and when I begin to see what has happened, I confess to you my heart is heavy. It seems like we came out fighting, contending for things, and we never learned when to stop fighting and contending and when to start building. Amen. While I was laid up, I read Mr. Colson's book on loving God. And if you have not read that book, you owe it to yourself to read it. I am convinced that Mr. Colson, whether regardless of the fact that he's not of our particular persuasion and operates in our circles, that Mr. Colson has had an encounter with God and knows something of the holiness of God that many of us know nothing about. Amen. And as I read that book, my heart was challenged and stirred and probed and dug. And I came across one section as I begin to read it. It just began to zero in on my own thinking, and I want to share it just briefly with you. But in his book on, on loving God, he makes this observation. Seeing holiness only as rule-keeping breeds problems. We've been concerned about building our fences and making our manuals tight and the requirements so rigid that nobody can jump over them. But my dear people, it is not the building of fences and the building of requirements. It is the indwelling power of the Holy Ghost. Mr. Colson lists at least four things let me, that he sees as problems when we are observing only rule keeping. First of all, he says it limits the scope of true biblical holiness, which must affect every aspect of our lives. Secondly, even though the rules may be biblically based, we often end up obeying the rules rather than obeying God. And concern with the letter of the law causes us to lose the spirit of the law. Third, Emphasis on rule-keeping deludes us into thinking that we can be holy through our efforts. As long as I keep the rules, as long as I adhere to the standard, I'm accepted. I'm a part of the crowd. I remember some years ago, after a Sunday morning service, Dr. Wilcox and I were talking in the vestibule of the church, and I said to Brother Wilcox, I said, Brother Wilcox, I said, I have something that's troubling me. And he said, what's that? I said, I'm troubled because there are some of the men in our movement whose message is nothing but things. And every time they preach, they take a different text and preach the same thing. Is that too far off? And I said, it seems to me that they take that line because they know as long as they do it, they will have the approval of the powers that be in the conservative movement. And Dr. Wilcox, in his own unique way, a few words, looked me square in the eye and he said, Jerry, that's worldliness. And I said, what? He said, that's worldliness. 
He said that's as much a spirit of worldliness as the man or the woman of the world who strive to do what they do to please the fads and the fashions of the world. Church, I want to say something this morning. I may never have another chance to say it, but I'm going to say it. We can talk about liberalism and worldliness and we can come down hard on those issues and folk will shout the aisles. But when we begin to deal with the pharisaical attitude and the harshness and the hardness in the lives of those who profess to be old-fashioned, we're considered liberal. Are you with me? I guess this is a good place to say something else. gentleman came to me just a three weeks ago who travels across a good section of the Midwest in his business. It brings him in contact with a number of preachers and a number of churches. And he said to me, Brother Young, are you aware that there is a considerable amount of murmuring and complaining and uh, real criticism to Brother Smool because he's asking that this be a year of reconciliation? I said, no, I did not. I said, I was totally unaware of it. Well, he said, I have traveled across enough of this section of the country and I've talked to enough of the men and he said, I am shocked and I'm concerned that there is the criticism at Brother Smool for asking for a year of reconciliation. Brethren, I tell you this morning hour, it's no wonder God is going to bypass us. We would rather hold on to some ideas rather than to have our ideas crumble and fall at the foot of the cross and let Jesus Christ plant his will in our lives. It's already been sounded from this pulpit, but why either we either are going to have a revival, a rebirth that our brother preached about last night of true Bible holiness, or we're going to cease to exist. My heart was challenged as I listened to Dan Stetler last night. I tell you, something within me, it rose up, it galloped, it leaped. It took me into the night hours and recharging me, making me to recognize uh, that this is our hour. We don't have to succumb to the enemy. If the devil can't get us in one way, he'll get us in the other way. And both of them are wrong. Mr. Colson goes on in the fourth thing. He says the fourth danger that rule-keeping can breed a, the serious effect is that our pious efforts can become self can become ego-gratifying as if holy living were some kind of spiritual beauty contest. And such self-centered spirituality in turn leads to self-righteousness, which is the very opposite of the selflessness of true holiness. End of quote. I think he hit it pretty close. Holiness and holy living is far more than a set of rules against sin and worldliness. Holiness is conformity to the character of God, to the obedience of his will. May I remind you this morning that the character of God has not changed, nor has his expectation for his people. If we will be intellectually honest and brutally frank with ourselves, 
We may have to admit, as one preacher did to me some time ago, that some of what we preach and stand for may be, well, more personally sacred than it is scripturally sound. Are you still out there? Titus tells us, tells us that God's grace has been given for the express purpose of being able to keep in a proper balance. He gives us the negative aspect. Deny ungodliness. Deny worldly desires. This is the prescription for living in this present world. There is an inseparable connection between creed and character and doctrine and life. And there is also a distinct relationship between separation from the world and deep piety. Amen. The thing that characterized and that stands out in my mind in the church from which I get my roots was the fact that while there was a deep separation from the world, it was distinct and it was understood, but our preachers, my pastors, did not spend their time preaching on things, but they preached the cross, they preached Christ, they preached the atonement until our hearts became hungry to want to walk with the Holy God. You knew what the standard was, you knew what the church stood for, but they didn't have to tell you every Sunday and every Sunday school class. I served as a conference president for 16 years, pastored for almost 20. How many times has pastor after pastor been absolutely devastated because he had somebody new come into his church and he had some new folk that knew nothing about the church or nothing about salvation and a Sunday school teacher or a Sunday school superintendent thought, thought that this was the time that they had to outline every distinctive and let them know what they stood for and what they did not stand for. And then they wonder why they don't come back. Are you with me? I want to tell you this morning, my dear people, that the spirit of holiness will work in the heart of an individual if given a chance. I've seen it work in my own ministry. I've seen individuals who came into our services that were anything but a holy-looking people, but over a period of time as the Holy Spirit began to deal with their hearts, they began to take on the character and the beauty of the Christ. And they began to separate from the world. If your separation is only because the manual says so, or only because the preacher says so, or only because sister so-and-so says you should, then you have the wrong kind of separation and holiness. Whatever I do, whatever I say, whatever I conform my life to, if it is not conformed to the holiness and the character and the purity of God, then it is not going to meet His approval. The negative aspect, denying ungodliness. This is the prescription for living in this present world. I tell you again, there is an inseparable connection between our creed and our character and our doctrine and our life. Chrysostom said, the worldly things are things which do not pass over with us into heaven but are dissolved together with this present world. That's a good definition of worldliness. We live in this present age, but we do not live like it or for it. 
because Christ has redeemed us from this present evil world. Paul in Galatians, he said, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from this present age, this present world, according to the will of God and of the Father. That's why we do not conform to the ideas and the philosophy of this world. It's because he doesn't. Paul writing in Romans chapter 12, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Paul expresses a similar thought as Titus in Hebrews chapter 5 when he said, We have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. That's the secret. If we can get men and women to taste of the goodness of God and fall in love with Jesus Christ, a lot of our problems will be solved. You may have tasted life's fair pleasure. You may have had adorning rich and gay, but when his grace really reaches your innermost being, you will be seen beyond this present world to that city that is not made with hands. And while walking through this world, you are not of it. And you can say with the songwriter every once in a while, is not this the land of Beulah? Blessed, blessed land of light, where the flowers bloom forever and the sun is always bright. And every once in a while, he'll come and drop an extra hunk of divine grace in your soul when you're going through the valley. And you'll be able to sing, tell me not of heavy crosses, nor of burdens hard to bear. For I found this great salvation makes each burden light appear. And I love to follow Jesus, counting all the world but dross. Worldly honors all forsaken for the glory of the cross. When you get that far, you want to go just a step farther. And you want to say again, oh, the cross has wondrous beauty. Oft I've found it to be true. When I'm in the way so narrow, I can see a pathway through. And so sweetly Jesus whispers, take the cross, you don't have to fear. I've trod the way before you, and the glory lingers near. Amen. That's why in the dark night when the hospital room is dark and the quarters are silent and you don't know what tomorrow holds, he comes and drops a bit of his glory. And he says, son, you don't have to worry. <laughs> I've tried the way before you. It's all right. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. But let me look quickly at the positive side of this discipline or this schooling or teaching of grace. It not only teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, but we are to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Scott points out that these three words describes life in its manifold relation. First of all, to himself, soberly. Some folk have taken the idea that Paul means that we're to go along, around with a long face and a sober expression and a holy grunt. Come on. Well, that's not what Paul's talking about at all, my friend. The word does say the joy of the Lord is our strength. This whole world is a world that is filled with problems and perplexities and burdens, and they don't want to see somebody else that has more than what they think they have. No, 
This word soberly is the word in the original. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because there's too many Greek scholars here. But it's a word that is a word for discipline and for self-control and for restraint. I live with my life under the control of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Christ has provided grace to live with the prudence which has everything under his control, which allows no passion or desire more than its proper place in my life. Just because we've been saved and sanctified does not solve all our problems. There is the continual growth and development and submitting of our lives, our wills, our passions, our desires to the Holy Spirit. That's living soberly. Then we are to live righteously. That's, this refers to our relationship with other people, our brother and sister in Christ. Paul, Peter wrote in 1 Peter, Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto feign love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Doesn't say that we love one another as long as they agree with us doesn't say we love them as long as they're going in the same direction that I'm going or that they adopt all of my peculiarities or all of my distinctives. It doesn't even say that we are to not love if we don't all agree equally on the divorce issue. I know well where I'm going when I say that. I'm not ignorant. I may look dumb. I tell you, my dear people, the divisions, the schisms that's slipping in among us, the lack of holy love among the brethren because we won't share ideas and, and thoughts exactly alike that is causing us to split and sever. Our young men coming out of our Bible schools have looked to the holiness movement uh, and they've seen the bickering and they've seen the fussing and the name calling uh, and they've seen what one has said about another brother. They're not wanting to go a liberal way. They just don't want to go that way of fussing and fighting. Come on, church. Peter says, love one another, the brethren, with a pure heart, fervently. It's not necessary to have agreement on all issues to love one another. We can and we will have differences of opinion on various issues, but we can still manifest brotherly love. If Mr. Wesley and his Calvinistic brethren could show love toward one another in his day, what about us in our day? John writes in 1 John, little children, let us not love in word, neither with the tongue, but in deed and in truth. Our relationship with one another. Then he talks about our relationship to the Lord. Godly lives. I lived and walked to please him and have his approval. We don't separate these qualities, but they work in harmony to make the total Christian the man or the woman that radiates the presence of the Christ. When I stop and think that he gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a people that is zealous of good works, that places responsibility on me as a Christian. You see, he wants a people that are not oddities. We're odd enough without trying to work at the job. No, 
This word peculiar means a people that separated unto himself, a people for his own choosing, for his own ownership. You are peculiarly because you belong to God. A people that are marked out for his own, zealous of good works. Then let me quickly hurry, and I must close the glorious prospect, looking for that blessed hope. I tell you, this is an encouraging hope. It makes suffering easier to endure. It makes trials and tests seem like tri less trying. It makes the toils of the road seem as nothing. We look for the hope of the child of God when we get to the end of the way. This hope is the anchor of the soul, which is both steadfast and sure. It will keep you faithful when others are losing the faith. It will keep you joyful when others are having a trouble of, of turning sour and getting all out of course, sorts and out of court. It will keep you watching when others have gone to sleep. Looking for this blessed hope will fill all of your longings. It will satisfy all your desires. It will meet your every need. And it will help keep you shouting happy on your way to glory. Hallelujah. Finally, Titus gives to us this blessed promise, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That little disciple band that stood on that Judean hillside as their master was taken from them and heard the angel give the last message to them that they were to receive, this same Jesus that you have seen taken is coming again in like manner. It did something for that group of men. They went into Jerusalem and waited for the power of the Holy Spirit to be outpoured upon them until their whole hearts were filled with the expectation and the longing of the fact he was coming back again. And they went forth to herald the glorious message. As a consequence, death lost its grip. He was coming again. The decrees of earthly men to silence their message lost its authority for he was coming again. The cat of nine tails in the dungeon dark lost its tear. He was coming again. What difference did it make? They lived it. They breathed it. They preached it. And they died with that hope. I tell you, church, words are inadequate to describe the glory of that coronation day that this hope gives. His glorious appearing will usher in a reign of righteousness and of peace of which there shall be no end. Souls that have been oppressed and pressed down shall weep no more. Inequalities and injustices will be but a memory of another day. It's a glorious hope. Sickness will be unknown. Death itself will at last be dead. No funeral processions will ever wind down the golden paved streets of the New Jerusalem. No cemeteries will doubt the hearsides of glory, for there will be no death. There will be no more struggling in the school of holiness and learning to discipline ourselves. The devil will never be able to fight us again. He'll never be able to track us down with his fiery darts of temptation. Hallelujah. It's a glorious day. It's a glorious day. Be no struggles trying to live as we ought to live with the power of the enemy against us. But we shall be like him and best of all, we shall see him. For he will be our God and we will be his children throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. While the ages roll, we'll keep on praising him. And our eyes will never tire nor grow old. And our song will ever be to the Christ who died for me while the years of eternity roll. 
You can take another way if you want to, but I want to take God's way. I want God's nature, God's character, God's holiness, and God's ethics in my life. I want to live a life that will stand the test when I'm ushered into his presence to give an account of my deeds. But the grace of God, which bringeth salvation, teaches us to deny godliness and worldly desires that we can look for the blessed hope. It includes reconciliation. It includes forgiveness and asking forgiveness and overlooking the faults of our brother and our sister and loving one another with a pure heart fervently that the world might know. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't want to